Humans have a profound need to make sense of our experience. And one of the primary ways we do that is through stories. When we think we're responding to a person, experience, or feeling, what we're usually really responding to is the story we're telling ourselves about that experience. And when we confuse interpretation with reality, we give our stories a degree of power and influence over us they don't deserve. My name is Scott Swanson, and I love helping people develop fresh insight into the stories that guide their lives. Because insight brings choice, and choice empowers and frees. What stories we tell to interpret our experience matter. Doing a better job of interpreting what's going on around and inside us can make for a better life and a better world. Hi, welcome back to the podcast. This time I have for you an interview with Alex Howard. With a colorful and unique background spanning the globe, Alex is on a mission to make a vibrant impact. From an athlete to a website designer, from a genetics research to building a children's charity, from personal struggle to wellness, Alex's journey has shaped her passion for coaching and transformation. Combining mindfulness, brain science, and coaching mastery, she empowers individuals to find connection, confidence, and spark for life. Alex is the founder of Mind Move Alive and the Bright-Minded Community. She brings a wealth of expertise and dedication to her work as a certified transformational life and wellness coach. Beyond her professional roles, Alex is a wife, a mother of two boys, a relentless optimist, and a big-time believer in people and their boundless possibilities. I've put links to her website and these notes on Alex in the show notes for today's session. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Uh, my apologies up front for the sound quality on my end, which uh, did not work out that well. So please bear with the audio on this recording and enjoy. Alex Howard, welcome, and thank you for being on the podcast with me today. Uh, thanks, Scott. I appreciate the invitation. You go by both Alex and Alexandra interchangeably? Mm, I think that there are officially two people who call me Alexandra, and that would be my mother and my brother. When they're mad at you? <laughs> yes. I get the full name from start to finish. So um, I think Alex is, yeah, is what 99.5% of the population call me. So Alex is perfect. Okay. And you always use Alexandra in, like you have that, you have Alexandra on yeah. your name card here and in your website. Yeah. And yeah. It just feels more like complete, you know, it's, it's like my full name. So right. Alexandra Howard, otherwise, you know, I've had in the past, I've had people uh, think I'm a guy. I've gotten in the habit of saying Alexandra when I write, so people don't think they're speaking to a, a man. Alex, you and I know each other through a program that we both invested in to help us with our uh, online business. And over the course of the number of calls we've been on together over the last couple of years, I have been, as I think probably everybody is when they meet you, captivated by your spirit and your smile and your exuding positive energy and all those wonderful gifts. I'm not saying that to blow smoke, but I just, this, this feels to me like an integral part of how you show up in the world. Mm. And I wonder if that has always been true for you 
or if this is something you have grown into through the years? Hmm. Yeah, that's a, a good question. Um, I think so. Yeah, thank you for for the question, and and thank you for noticing my energetic qualities. I appreciate that. Um, I do think that I naturally, my natural spirit, my natural way of being, my natural way of showing up in the world is indeed the way that you describe it. But I will say that there was a a chunk of time in my life where that got significantly knocked out of my sails. <laughs> the wind got knocked out of my sails, shall we say. And uh, I did not experience that at all. And I think uh, that was definitely a, a very different experience to, to this, this experience here where I'm, you know, able to show up with that that vibrance and the the energetic quality. So yeah, I do think that there was there was a chunk of time in my life where there was uh, some significant happenings where I did experience a very different uh, set of inner and outer well things, whatever you want to call it. And and at the time, you know, that was there was a lot that was happening at the time. Um, things that kind of came out of out of left field or it felt like it came out of left field which i think often happens where we sort of go through life and then all of a sudden you know we kind of wake up one day and we go jesus what the heck <laughs> what's happening where am i you know i don't feel good and you realize um you're not you're not where you want to be at all and i think it's like a for me it was like a slow a slow burn. You know, it's interesting when you're on that kind of treadmill, um, so to speak, whatever that is, you don't always notice that you're on it until there's a moment usually where your body just screams out or, or your mind screams out in some way. And then you're like, whoa, okay. Noted. Like this, the, the cry, the scream becomes so loud that you can't ignore it anymore. Yeah. And I think that's probably what happened? Well, that is what happened. So, for you, when that moment came, what's the next thing that happens? Well, I think for me, it's funny when you're on when you're on that treadmill, whatever that is. I think that there's an enormous amount of fighting that's happening, and resistance, and tightness, and holding on, and grasping, and clinging, and you know that treadmill is just very tight. And then all of a sudden. Poof, this moment happens and you just simply can't hang on anymore. It's almost like there's this surrender that happens where you just, you just fall, but a falling that it's hard to describe because it's sort of like a, I mean, I look back at it now and I say, okay, it's sort of felt like a really deep surrender where I just like everything just shut down and, and almost like a numbness. Like I couldn't feel, I couldn't. Like emotionally shut down. Just everything. Everything. I couldn't, it was just like a shutdown. It was like no more, right? no more. And that was it. So for me, the next step was just a surrender that I didn't really realize perhaps at the time. And it wasn't a choice that I had made. Like I am going to surrender now, but I think that, that my body chose it. My body said no. And my mind, hmm. 
you have you have reached your limit and you cannot continue. And so I'm going to make a choice for you. So there was like a a surrendering on some level that perhaps wasn't as choiceful. But I think that moment was very pivotal. It was a turning point for me, for sure. Because from that moment on, I decided that I was never going to not exercise my choice, my, my, the muscle of choosing because I had, I didn't even know that I had that much choice before. I think that's such an interesting concept and idea that we can go through life without really knowing that we have choice because we feel like we're just in this cave and it's dark and we can't really see. There's no windows. So like, where's the choice? I don't know. It just feels that's, that's fascinating to me because as I read your bio, you grew up with like a pretty um, privileged life traveling mm-hmm. around and, mm-hmm. and all mm-hmm. sorts of opportunities. And mm-hmm. I, I imagine that, that if there was a person who felt like they had choice, it would be someone who had, had lived the life you'd lived. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not saying that there wasn't choice. Because I think I've always had, you know, there has been choice, but you know, when you kind of go down these rabbit holes in the mind and it's a perceived experience, like you just feel locked in your lane and your path and whatever you're, you're dealing with in that moment. And it just seems like it's like one, I don't know if people who are listening or will relate to this, but it's like, you're just on this path and one thing's just leading to another and you're just kind of on it, but you don't really know how bad it is, I think. And no one's telling you or they are, but you're not, you're not listening. You're kind of not, you're just, it's like a, a very interesting experience, that one, where you're, you're here, but not really here. I mean, it really is like an autopilot mode. It's like you just go through the motions. Like there's no presence, there's no joy, really. I mean that that with that experience I definitely can relate to. And yeah. just the deep not wanting to be there, like the wishing, the longing, the oh, like every morning you wake up and you're like, oh, you know, what else? What else? Like how can I can I break out of this? I don't know how. And I think that experience can snowball if you stay in that for so long, you know, and then, I mean, you pick up bad habits. Like I did that, right. I picked up terrible habits. I picked up smoking, you know, my husband, he was, he, he started drinking. Like, you know, you pick up these habits along the way to, to help cope or to help soothe or to comfort. And then those habits turn into addictions and that could become, that's a whole other situation. But but that's that's kind of the you know and you don't think it's bad you're like yeah, it's fine you know you you move along and you're just these are all little vices and you're like it's fine it's fine it's fine but then you wake up one day and you're like it's not fine and it's all a little bit secret and underhanded and it's like you're justifying it all it's okay but none of it was okay at all I think that's such a great description of my sense of what a lot of people experience Mm -hmm. in terms of the ability to go through life kind of half asleep. Yeah. Right. We get into patterns, we get into routines, we have stories we tell ourselves about responsibilities or what success looks like or what the good life is, those sorts of things. 
And we pay a price for that, right? We sacrifice for that. Yeah. And we don't, there's such small sacrifices. There's such small, you know, it's like that really cheap subscription that, oh, you're only paying, you know, $2 or $5 a week. You don't even realize you're paying it until you look at the yes. visa bill at the end of the year and you look at how That's much right. it costs you, you know? That's right. Yeah. Suddenly the, the, the $5 coffee at Starbucks becomes a $1,000 habit or something when you, yeah. you know, extrapolate. And so we, we kind of fall asleep to ourselves. And then we're, we're, we're looking for ways to, I don't know if this language fits for you, but almost medicate ourselves to save ourselves from our mm-hmm. own personality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To look at one's psyche all the time in that unproductive way is, is painful. Yes. Look for ways to get out of that. I'm curious. Yeah. Something you said a while ago that it was your body that told you, mm-hmm. and I know that you're a dancer, and I think you were an athlete as well. And I wonder if there's something about that that for you it was your body that gave you the message. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, you had a thought one day, or you had a feeling, or something. Did what? Do, yeah. Yeah. Sense of that. that, that totally. Yeah. I mean, my body has always been. Uh, I've always been in deep connection with my body. Quite frankly, yeah. As an athlete growing up, I, I, you know, I've done lots of different things, and my body is very much a um, channel that I honor and I respect very much. And so, it was interesting that my body told me that it was done, and it was such a body thing. It really was like my body really really spoke to me. And, um, I mean, I, I just, I, I couldn't move. I mean, I was just, I was done. It was so fascinating. And even if I'd wanted to, it, I, I, w- I wasn't able to. So I do think that there's some, a fascinating connection there that I think at the time, I don't think I was a conscious around that. I don't think there was a, a consciousness around around how my body spoke to me, but I could feel that it was completely and utterly depleted and drained and that I wasn't taking care of it at all. There was this real sense that there was no care. I mean, I was half a pack a day or something smoking, like it was crazy. And it went totally against sort of this image, this self-image or this image of Alex, right? Who's healthy and an athlete and takes care of herself and, and does all these great things and can do whatever, right, with her body. Like I can play tennis and dance and this and that. Like it just went against all of that. And for me, that was where I, brought, I felt a lot of shame, right? Because I'd never not taken care of my body in such a, a terrible way. And yet at the same time, it was like I couldn't take care of it. I don't know. It was, it was like I I didn't know what else was on the menu of choice. See, that's the thing. Like, I, I feel like even with the people that I work with now, it's like you don't know what to replace it with. And if you don't know what to replace it with, you're not going to replace it, you, you know? And so, because you need it. So I, I really struggled at the time. I didn't have another menu of choice. And I, and I think I could, I could feel that. Like, I could feel that I was stuck in this menu. And, and I know now why I smoked. I smoked to breathe, which is so interesting yeah. because I wasn't breathing. I, I had this short breath. 
I didn't know how to breathe. And I think that's an experience that a lot of people have. They forget they have breath and breath will counter anxiety. It will counter so many of these states that we enter. And I did not know how to breathe. So I needed a cigarette to get that relaxation response. And so every time I took a breath in and a breath out, my whole system relaxed. And it was the only time I could relax was when I had a cigarette. Yeah. And I and I I think that's fascinating. That is totally fascinating. And how long did it take you to put those two things together? Recently. Oh. I, so after after I was like, okay, done, enough. I'm not doing this. This is this is I'm done. Like it it literally was overnight for me. So everything just collapsed, boom, done. And then the next day I just decided. I'm not okay. That's the first thing I I declared out loud, <laughs> which again goes against my self image because I'm I'm always okay. Alex is okay. Alex is great. Alex can do everything. Alex is awesome. Like I was like, no, no, no. I'm not any of those things, and I am not okay. So that was the first thing I had to accept and say. It's that was hard. And then the second thing is I need help, and that's also a really difficult thing to say. Because again, when to get my self-image, I can, I'm good. I got this. I'll figure it all out. I don't need anything. I don't need anyone. I got this, right? I was just like problem solver, fixer, rescuer. I'm, I got it all. Like I can whip out whatever I need. <laughs> so, you know, that, that was a really tough, tough thing for me as the, you know, CEO of the rescue club that I needed help. So it, was there a direct line between that whole experience and you becoming a coach? Yeah. Yeah. Big time. The first thing I did was, and I remember this distinctly, so I woke up the next day, I threw my pack of cigarettes out and I've never smoked since. And it wasn't easy because let me tell you, quitting smoking, <laughs> when you are addicted to smoking, it's one of the hardest things to do. <laughs> It's really hard. So, you know, so that's the first thing. And then, and then I remember calling the Zen master, like this guy, just looked him up online. And I was like, I just, I need somebody. I just need somebody to, I just need to start. I don't even know what I need. I just need somebody. That's all I kept saying, somebody. (laughs) So I looked up this guy and he was this uh, Zen master. He was a meditation guy and he ended up living down the street from me. And, um, I spoke to him on the phone and I said, I, I just, I'm in trouble. I need help. And he says, come on down two o'clock today, come down my house. I, I open my doors and I have a meditation for people in the community. And I was like, okay, it's <laughs> a little weird, but okay. So I got in the car and I drove, I drove down and lo and behold, there he was with, his wife and he had about six shoes in the front hallway. And I thought, okay, there's people here. Okay. This is too creepy. Um, and then, you know, he, he, he had this beautiful hour and a half meditation. First time I ever meditated first time I ever noticed that I had breath was in that moment that day. And I sat there and he, he looked at me and he said, have you ever, have you ever done this before? I said, no, sit in the corner and just be silent. And I was like, okay. And I swear to God, that was the worst hour and a half of my life. I I don't even, it it was like, it was like I had 
an entire population of a country in my head. Like it was so loud. My, my, my brain and my mind was so loud and I was equally terrified and intrigued. And from that moment on, I I kept coming back and I was like, dang girl, you have a mind. What? I was like, I had no, and up until that moment, I knew I had a mind but I didn't know I had a mind. Like I didn't know that all of this was happening in my mind. So what, what do you mean when you say that, that you didn't know you had a mind? What, what is a mind? I don't know. I didn't know that I had this landscape, that you could train it, that you could notice what was happening, that there was this level of precision that you could master or tap into, that you could you could understand that you could sit in stillness and that you could track and notice where everything's moving and what's happening and how it's all going. And I I had no concept of that. I didn't know. I mean, I I knew I had a brain. I knew I had a mind, but I didn't realize or, or have a sense for how powerful this mechanism is and how it all works. I had no idea. When I was younger, I just did did stuff. Like I didn't know that my mind was as powerful as it was. I, you know, I didn't have consciousness around that for a very long time. I didn't seem to consider this amazing thing we have here. And so I became incredibly curious and intrigued about mind. So I, I think I can see now how you came up with this business called Mind Mood. Yeah. Alive. Yeah. yeah. So from there, I, I started training with him, so to speak. You know, he was a beautiful man. And I would go there once or twice a week for an hour and a half. And he would train me and he would teach me. And we would have these beautiful discussions. And then I started, I, I went into psychotherapy. So I became a patient of a very interesting gentleman and I would, I was in a dynamic group. I was, I was in a group of about 12 of us and I would show up every week for two hours in this group of 12 and we would just talk about everything, which was equal parts terror (laughs) and intriguing and deeply, deeply fascinating because that's where I learned that we're all the same. And and it's where I it's where I heard the, the the great range of experience, human experience in that room. And I realized that everyone, we are all in the same soup. Which there is, are no exceptions to that rule. What's the soup we're all in? The soup of life, the soup of human experience. It's a universal experience. I mean, we all think we're so different and we're all experiencing things differently, and we're not. They're just different applications of the same themes. But the themes are really, it's very simple, but it's, there's so many applications and it can go into so many just different areas. But I really, at that moment, realized like we're all experiencing life in more similarly than, than we are differently. And that was really profound for me. Think about how in our culture, we are still to some extent encouraged to cultivate our sense of our own individuality. Mm our own uniqueness, uh, our own specialness. And, you know, there's all sorts of debates back and forth around that. But 
what I hear you pointing to is this common human experience mm-hmm. that we share. Yes. But it's like we don't know we're sharing it. It's true. And so we look at, you know, glossy people or successful people, however you define that. And I, not we, I, even at this stage in my life with with the work that I've done, it's easy for me, it's possible for me to look at those kind of people and somehow think that there is something qualitatively different about their, their take on the human experience than mine. And sometimes I have to remind myself, you know, this, this sense that there is this common humanity that we share, which is a way into relationship. Mm-hmm. What kind of people do you work with in your, your coaching practice? Um, you know, I think, I think it's, I think probably very similarly in a way, you know, people who are feeling like they are going through the motions, they are on autopilot, they're not vibrant. They're not feeling alive. They're not feeling joyful. They're not feeling in flow. They're not feeling their bodies. They're not feeling anything, really. And they're just like, oh, what is, you know, and maybe they are picking up vices and they're picking up bad habits along the way and they're drinking too much or they're, you know, doing, engaging in, in things that they prefer not to. And they just want to feel, I mean, you know, this word resilience keeps coming up because I think I used to have a very different understanding of resilience. And, you know, I I help people really build a kind of resilience that is more about bouncing in than it's about bouncing back. Because I always thought that was so interesting. I'm like, people like, oh, you're so resilient. You're bouncing back. I'm like, back to where? To what? The growth that I've had is really about bouncing in. And I was able to bounce in and I could hold, I, my capacity to hold increased significantly. I could hold everything. I could hold it all. Whereas before I was like, eh, don't want that. Eh, don't want that. I'm going to run away from this too. Yeah, prefer not to have that either. Thanks. <laughs> I just want this. This is all I can handle. Everything else can just go away. And I realized like in this process of, of learning and growing that in fact, it's not how it works. It's like and, and in that room where I was with, with all those people was, was also where I learned like a deep and profound and wise bouncing in. And it all is part of who you are. And when we exile parts of us, like we tend to do, which is what I was doing, it's not going to go well when you're sending parts of you to solitary confinement with no boat, and no bridge and no access. It's going to bite you in the ass at some point. Resilience to me, it's like this deep bouncing in and being with, like a radical being with and a, and a radical holding all of it with acceptance and openness and curiosity and love, right? And, and that is a process in and of itself. But that's what I do. I mean, that's, that's what I, because that's where vibrance lives, right? It's when we're not crapping on ourselves and beating ourselves up for this and creating conditions all the time around what's okay and what's not okay and blah, 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 you know, and setting all these parameters and expectations without even noticing that we're doing it. Just the releasing, complete releasing, and then an allowing of experience as it's unfolding, just an allowing and allowing and allowing and allowing and a release, a surrendering control 
it is such a hard practice, simple in, in theory, but difficult in, in practice. Um, but I believe that that's where true vibrance, like true vibrance, like when I dance, that's where it's a complete and utter surrender. It's a bouncing in and it's an allowing, right? And it's just this beautiful ebb and flow without any conditions placed on it. Like whatever it is, it is. A few minutes ago, you're talking about uh, you know how we exile parts of ourselves, and and I have found in in my own practice one of the the modalities that I use the internal family systems mm-hmm. is has the the stuff that I have seen happen in people when they have a chance to befriend those parts of themselves. Yeah, that are doing the best they can. Totally based on what they know. Yep. And bringing self energy to that and understanding and compassion, but also kind of a sense of boundariedness. Yes. Yeah. And isn't it interesting that there was so much shame around some of the things that I did? And I think that, you know, shame is there's the quote, a great quote that's like it's it's basically like destroys all joy, right? It's 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 the the killer of all aliveness is this is this shame that we hold. And it's so interesting because I used to have shame around smoking. Like that was the worst thing that I could think to tell anybody about me. The worst thing in the world. Like if anyone knew that I smoked, oh my God, that would be the end of me. And then all of a sudden that curtain started to lift because I started to understand why I was doing it and actually that it was in service of me at the time. Thank yeah. God I smoked. I can't even imagine if I didn't smoke, like what would I have done? Suffocated. Yeah. Like I needed something. I needed a functional coping strategy in that moment. Yeah. I needed something and I chose to smoke. And that was why I, I did it. It wasn't because I was trying to kill my lungs or destroy myself or, you know, it was genuinely in service of, of survival, like just staying alive. But for the longest time, I was so in judgment of myself. Oh my God. I was in judgment of myself and I judged myself deeply for also for therapy. That was another one. Don't tell anyone you're in therapy, Alex, because then it means there's something wrong with you <laughs> and you can't cope with life and you suck. <laughs> right? Like I couldn't imagine telling my family. I couldn't. Was like, I was the secret, 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 secret. I had these secrets because I had exiled all these parts of me that were like, nope, you go over there. You're not allowed to play at the table. You don't have the right to speak up. So when I started to release all of that and be like, yeah, and yeah, and and I'm and I'm so much better for it. You know, I'm not smoking anymore. I'm going to th- I like I was so much better for it. And I started to to become really proud of it. So I started owning it. Hmm. It's like, yes, this is what I'm doing because I am committed to being happy and joyful and resilient. And all the things that I know I am, not that I want to be, that I know I am. So it was like this deep reclaiming of myself, but like on steroids. So, you know, that's the best when you start to see it as something that is just a deep claiming, like an owning 
of yourself and that you deserve to have that you and it, and it's 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 your right it's who you are and it's all there it's all available it's all available right now and that's the thing when i started connecting that dot i'm like that is so cool thanks thank you for going into such lucid detail around the experience of welcoming home those exiles and making a conscious effort to choose to live with another set of narratives another set of stories about what's in and who's in it and the rest of it when we were talking about having this conversation when we were talking about my work with men and and some of the men who you work with and we talked about aliveness and resilience and flexibility and all those things and uh, but there was there was another pattern there was another energetic move that you have noticed not only in guys and in people but but certainly in the men that you have worked with around this kind of self-acceptance or uh, welcoming of the complexity of our experience. Talk yeah. about, about what you find in this, this pattern, this back and forth, this energetic move that so many men you, you encounter are making. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting one. I mean, if, if I was to go back in time and re-examine my relationship with my husband, I would say that part of what was happening and part of the breakdown for us to some extent was that I think that I was a bit of an emotional compass for him. And what I mean by that is that he his movements and how he ended up how he lived his life or you know moved through his days or whatever was dependent on how i was feeling and how i was and what drama happened in that day and i think that a lot of men might have the same experience to some extent where they're not necessarily feeling like they can own their own experience they're there to make sure that everybody's okay around them. And there's this expectation in a way that the guy is going to take care of and provide for and all this kind of stuff, right? Like culturally, that's kind of how we, we've been conditioned. So it's, you know, there is this sort of like, well, if she's okay, then I can be okay. Then it's okay for me to be okay. And I realize, and this is where I think it was very important what happened because what I realized is that I was putting an enormous burden on him. You know, if there was a problem in my life, he was the one that got to hear about it over and over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again. Right. So he was kind of like my dumping ground without really noticing that that's what I was doing, but it was what I was doing. And are you thinking at the time, are you conscious at the time of the extent to which his okayness is wrapped up in yours? No. 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 Because at this point, like, it's all about me. Okay. So you're just let's, sharing. Let's be frank. <laughs> it is all about me. And this is where... Well, hang on a second. Hang on a second. Because that, that could sound like an arrogant, egocentric Alex who doesn't give a flying you know what about anybody else. Well, I think to some extent, Okay. I think I was a little bit not not con not not intentionally. Not like, oh, it's all about me and Alex is first. But right. it was it was more like 
no, I have a problem. I have the problem. Like you need to listen to me because I'm, I'm suffering. Like I have a problem and I, I'm in, you know, and, but the problem with, with, with what was going on, it was on, it was constant and it was always around my family. It was a constant thing, a constant theme. And I remember very distinctly after, you know, everything, the shit kind of hit this, hit the, the roof and, and I started doing a bit of my own work. I was like, oh my God, this guy has no space. He's got no space to move. Like I take up a lot of space. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I think I did. I took up a lot of space with my problems, my dramas, my things, my, 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 my. And I'm not saying that this is the experience across the board. I'm just saying this is this was my experience. And what I had to do is to really take responsibility for that piece to say, you know what, this was, this was not on you. Like you, you did not. And you know, guys are fixers. And this is really important because he, he was like, well, my job is to fix this. Then I got to fix it. And I got to go in and I got to fix it. And, And if I don't fix it, or I don't show that I'm fixing it, then I'm not a good guy or I'm not a good husband, or I'm not a good father, whatever. And I did not have a clue about any of this, like zero. And so, but I I think in a way I was like, yeah, you you do need to just listen to me because I have a problem. Like clearly I have a problem and who else am I going to talk about it with? So you need to be there. So I think in my mind, I was like, this is, yeah, this is what it is. But after I'm telling you, there was a moment where I went to him and I actually apologized. I said, I'm really sorry. You know, this, this scenario with my, with my family and all the drama, it's been going on a really long time. And I'm really sorry that we talk about it all the time. That shouldn't be the way that our relationship is. And if I need to talk about, I should go somewhere else, which is what I was doing. I was going to a therapy group. I was going and talking about it somewhere else. So I could come back and we could talk about other things. We could talk about our relationship and what we wanted to do. And like, I could ask him how he was, which I don't think I did for a decade. Hmm. I never asked him how, and how are you? Tell me about your day. What's happening in your life? (laughs) So it sounds like you were unconscious Mm -hmm. about the extent to which he would be owning or feeling a need to fix or somehow manage your emotional state. Was he unaware of the internal drive within him to do that? Yes, he was unaware. And what ended up happening was I took up smoking and he took up drinking. Right. Because it was just too much all of it was too much and we were bringing it to the table in the wrong way so there's this way in which he knows yeah he is supposed to take care of you and your well-being is connected to his efficacy as a man yeah and at the same time he doesn't know that that's right and then on top of that all of his stuff because he's got stuff too Sure. So he's got all of his stuff going on that I have zero concern about. Because you're all wrapped up in you. I'm all wrapped up in me. I'm like, okay, this is stories about me. Okay. So we're going to keep it on me. But again, it's not like a narcissistic thing. No. It's just it's a naivete. Yeah. It just wasn't consciously, I was just used to it and also a programming. Like you just get used to these, these reels, these scripts, and you just go and it's just, 
coming back, coming even to this day, I have to be very careful. I have to be very intentional. And I have to remind myself that there's a time and a place. And do I really need to talk about this right now? No, I don't. I'm okay. So I took responsibility for that. And I'm not saying that I was the one, it was my fault and everything, but that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that we each can take responsibility for our parts. And I think when I did that, there was an opening. There was an opening in our communication, in our healing, because he didn't feel like he failed and that he's a big disappointment and that he's just, you know, alcoholic and he sucks and he's an addict and all of these things. It's like, no, you did that for a reason. The same reason I picked up smoking, like those are behaviors we pick up to help us cope with something that's beyond our scope of capacity. And so that's what happened. And it caused a lot of hurt and a lot of pain. Let me tell you, like it was, it was a really, you know, big deal. Um, And I'm not trivializing any of that. But, but I will say that the fact that we were able to take responsibility for our parts in it and declare that and state it and own it and claim it, I think saved our relationship because there was no blame. It was very interesting. Like it was hurt and pain, but not as much blame, maybe at the beginning, because you, you know, it's, it's a big kind of explosion, but then, but then it sort of became more of like a, a journey of sorts for, for each of us. And we each were kind of on our own paths of healing. And we were able to, to do that in our own ways. And I think what's really interesting, going back to the, to the man um, topic, what I realized and noticed is that what, what Tom needs is very different than what I need. And I think that what I thought was what I needed was what he needed too. <laughs> so I started to understand as my next step that his needs are very different and that's okay. And I just, and I need to respect that and know what that is. And I need to ask him, what do you need? When do you need it? How do you need it? The same way I get to ask myself that question and he has to ask it of me. Like we are very different. And so what I learned about him and what I've been learning about a lot of men that I work with is this need for space and for reset and for recovery. And I think as they get older, as you get older, I think all of us, that need for spaciousness increases and the need to have built-in recovery and built-in reset. And a, and a man will do that very differently than women. Women, sometimes reset means having a chat with another woman, like with their girlfriends. We go out and we chit-chat and we do our thing. For a man, it's different. It's more quiet. Like it's, I just want anyone around. You know, I just want a moment of peace and quiet. So I noticed that it can look very different. And sometimes, you know, that can be a little bit, like if you don't understand that, then you can get into trouble too, because women are like, well, you're not spending time with me. What's wrong with like, you know, what's wrong? (laughs) But, but I think that's where we start to understand what each one needs. And that for me was a huge aha moment a huge aha moment and allowing him, sometimes he needs a whole day of silence. 
no speaking, like a retreat day. And I'm like, okay, noted. So I'll just, it'll just be a quiet day. And he's better for it. He's just a better human and a better dad and a better husband and a better boss and all, all that stuff. So yeah, there was a great learning there around honoring our needs and then a deep respect for, for what that is. You know, I go dancing by myself and that's what I need and that's what I love. And he's like, great, go enjoy it. Have a blast. And he's so supportive and he loves it. You know, so it's, it's like, um, it's healthy. It, it also requires each of you, and so in this case, Tom, to know what it is he needs. Yes. And that was the process. Not, yes. Hey, that's because that's not that's right. That, with, and that's right. Uh, with guys. Yes. I mean, and, and some women, and there's some guys who are very self-aware around that kind of stuff. So, you know, we're, we're broad generalizations here, but without sort of infringing on Tom's own story or privacy, is there, or, or maybe as you look at him and group him together with some of the other guys you've worked with, what have you noticed about the process of men connecting with an awareness of their own needs? I think it takes time. It takes a lot of time. That's the first thing I'll say. It's not something that happens overnight. It's a, it's, it's, it's a long kind of process. And I don't know if it's like a safety thing. Like, is it really safe to go and do my own thing? Like, am I, is this, am I going to get in trouble somewhere along the line? Like if I really lean in and do this, like, I don't know if it's that, but they, they just notice that there's, or I don't know. And, and that, that, that is, that is true because like for Tom, I don't, he didn't know what was his without my, without being mine as well. Yep. And I think that's why, right. When I say he was like, I was his emotional compass. Like I really was like, it was like, okay, where's Alex now today? Is everything okay? Okay, great. And if it's, she's not okay, then I go there and if, and then make sure she's okay. And then if she's okay, then I'll come back over here. And then, but it wasn't, he was not rooted in himself. I wouldn't say. And he kind of grew up like that too, right? He grew up without having that like core, core rooting of like, you do you. And I think that might happen a lot for, for men, especially the ones I work with. Like they grow up with all these expectations of who they should be. And they spend their whole lives trying to live up to that. And then they get to a certain point and they're like, damn it, I don't, I don't think I want to do that anymore. <laughs> like that does not sound fun at all. So their success paradigms don't include interests and hobbies and all these fun things that you get to do and like connecting with other guys and talking about intimate things. And so it's very rare for me to work with a guy who is like, you know, he's just explored everything. And it is more often than not, it's like, I don't, I don't know. Like, okay, let's, let's test this out. And it's a little scary. Usually. What do you think is scary about it? Gosh, I don't know. I think a lot of fear of failure because I think it's built in to the programming. Yeah. Like, what if I fail? What if I suck at this? You know, what if I'm not great at it? What's everyone going to think? Because ultimately, guys supposed to be successful at all costs. And if you're not, you're not a man, right? <laughs> it's like, that's a lot of pressure. So I think for a man to just do something 
just for the sake of it with no outcome and no expectation and no whatever and this and that. And I just get to whip it out and just show it out. You know, like, I don't think that was, that's part of the conditioning. So it's very interesting to get the guys to kind of just relax into this space and take up that space and do it without their their significant others or their wives and just say, I'm doing this, I'm going, I'm, you know, and just set those boundaries for themselves. And Tom does that now. Like, you know, he's really, he's into fitness and he loves learning about it. He's got a really deep inquiring mind and he's studies all of it. And that's what he loves. He loves to study. He loves to understand the body. Like it's a real pursuit for him. And he's developed that as his passion. And that only happened in the last few years. I'm really interested in what you said about encouraging these men to take up space. Because, you know, we live in a time in Western culture where there's a lot of discourse and even social policy around historically, traditionally, how much space men have taken up in the public sphere at any rate. Mm -hmm. And and I, you know, I don't dismiss that at all. So what do you think about that? Is it the Mm -hmm. case that whether it was done by, you know, social convention or biology or whatever it is, to the extent that men have taken up social space, they haven't taken up personal space? Like what's going, what do you think is going on here? Yeah. You might disagree with my analysis, but I'm I'm just thinking about, you know, we live in this time where it's like the whole gender politics thing is really fraught. And so to talk about how men can increase their own health by taking up more space. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting. I don't know. I mean, I I think there is some part of me that I notice and I feel a sense of danger. Like that's why I say this the safety, right? It, it, there is some part of the man that I feel, the ones that I work with, it, there's there's a trepidation, like there's a feeling of non-safety that's attached to that. It's not like a, yay, let's do this. And there's just something and it's so nuanced, but it's there. And I think that there is such a, has been such a narrow lane to some extent around what's allowed what's not allowed and i think for men now i think it's it's tough i think it's a little tough being a guy right now you know there's a lot of go there's a lot going on there's been a lot going on and you know and i'm i'm pro woman like i really am i love my my girls but i'm also pro man you know cuz i feel like in a way that there's been almost a shrinking of the man to some extent rather than an expanding and and i feel like if we're going to really be in relationship like true relationship it has to be it has to include both the man the female the everyone's in like you know all of it like all of it we all have to show up you know the rules have to be the same for everybody in a way and and i just wonder to some extent whether the man I'm not a man so i i don't know but i'm just going to share like whether there's been a little bit of like a hit you know, and I'll hear it a lot, like, oh, well, you know, there's this and there's that. And th- there's just a bit of a disempowerment. I don't know if you if you feel that at all in some way, but it and it's nuanced. Like, it's very, very subtle. Yeah. There's something there that I'm like, oh, boy, oh, boy. 
And, and it doesn't feel totally on par for me right now. Yeah. And maybe that's why I have a bit of a soft spot for guys, you know, because I'm like, okay, come on now. Like, we got it. We can, you know, let's, there has to be a balance and a symmetry and a synergy from my perspective, you know, there has to be that. And it's not just woman power at all costs or whatever else power at whatever cost. Like it has to be the whole, like we have to bring the whole up. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, when you were talking earlier about those parts of yourself that you exiled as being unacceptable and unwelcome. Yes. I think that works at the collective level as well. Yeah. Maybe all or most cultures do this. I don't know, but you know, to the extent that the culture has tended to privilege certain people in other ways over others, and and it's understandable that there is a, there is a, there's a desire to correct that to bring people back in line, but to let not in line, but like to bring people back into yeah circle. And when in the process of doing that, we begin to then exile other people. Yeah. That's you right. kind of end up in a similar situation. Yeah. And, and, and one of the things that I believe about privilege is that it is invisible to those who possess it. Right. So to the extent that one has privilege, until that's made evident, it just feels mm-hmm. like normal. Mm-hmm. So you have this, you know, broadly speaking, again, it's not true for all of us, but you have this gender that's been socialized, as you say, around your responsibility is to take care of other people, your responsibility is to take care of your family, at least physically and uh, financially, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, maybe even emotionally mm-hmm. in terms of your partner. And, uh, and so that's your job. You do that job and you will have done your job well. And then to be told that, well, actually, you're the problem. Well, I was just trying to take care of my family and do what you told me I was supposed to do. And now you're telling me I'm the problem. Yeah. So I, I, I can see how men, some men end up feeling like, you know what? It doesn't matter. What mm-hmm. I do wrong. Exactly. Right. Yes. Why, even, why even bother? It, exactly. Indifferent and apathetic and in the middle. Yeah. Right. Cause it's unsafe. Yeah. It's unsafe on this side and it's unsafe on that side. Yeah. And it's so I might as well just stay right here. Or to go to the other side and say, well, it's actually women are the problem. It's yes. actually the feminists that have messed exactly. everything up, right? Yeah. Like there's so many ways that we can can slice and dice and demonize yeah. each other yes. in an effort to try yeah. and assert our own humanity. But how do we do that without doing it at the expense of, of the humanity? The humanity yeah, of that's right. And I think, again, it comes back to responsibility. It's just your own responsibility. You, you have the right to just to own and claim yourself. Everyone does. Right. In whatever way that is, right? In whatever form that is. And that's, that's, that's the opportunity and the gift. And whatever, you know, whatever that looks like, you get to do that, whether you're a man or female or whatever. Like it, it's, it's everybody's right. Yeah. And when we do that, everybody wins. When we collectively create space for everyone to do that. Yes, yeah. when we co- exactly. Yeah. And when we all are claiming that core essence, whatever that is, and we allow each other to do that wholly and fully. I mean, it sounds, it's a utopia. I don't think it's, you know, like, it's probably never going to happen. But, but that is that I believe 
And that that's the work I engage in. I just say, listen, like you, because you feel better. You just, you feel better. You are better. You show up better. You know, we have this one life to live. That's it. So you have, you know, do the best that you can with it. Enjoy it as much as you can. Really enjoy it. Be joyous. And, and if you're not enjoying it, then what's the point? Like truly, if you're just going through the motions your whole life, I mean, what a tragedy. Alex, I think that's the final word. Well, thank you. I've been. Uh, Thanks for doing this. We've been, we've been on for a while. Yeah. Hopefully sharing something of value. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. If it's of no value, everybody's turned it off by now. Exactly. Everyone's like, I'm out. Exactly. No, no, it's been wonderful. Yeah, it's good to talk about these things because, um, again, it's how we realize we're all in the same soup. And I think it's important. Well, I appreciate you taking so much time out of your afternoon to come and do this with me. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. Take care. And I'll put information, by the way, in the, the show notes about where people can get a hold of you and your website, and uh, probably put something in the outro as well, just so that people know where to find you. Awesome. Right. Thanks, Al. Awesome. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Personal Story Coach Podcast. What are you taking away with you that can help you change the way you think about your life? I help people, mostly men, gain insight into their current stories and practice telling ones that better align with their purpose and principles. If you'd like to know more about what I'm working on, go to personalstorycoach.com. There you can subscribe to my blog, see my menu of offerings, and sign up for my mailing list. Until next time.